Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on this uh, sunny September day. Uh, my name is Donna Bishop. I'm the host of Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. And we're live here at Toronto Fashion Week. And I'm delighted to have Ron White here today, our shoe Did you come up with that term, shoe Who uh, bequeathed you that? <laughs> it, was, it was actually Jeannie Becker. Yeah. So, so we, we were doing a show at one point in time, and she kept saying the shoe guru, and then she shortened it and it became the shoe I love it. Um, before we get into your, you know, your life with shoes, yep. I'd, like to, I'd like to start at the beginning, because this is about getting to know you as well. So can you tell us a little bit about where were you born and what your family makeup's like? Okay, so um, hello, good evening. Thanks for everyone coming. I was wondering if there would be five people here or <laughs> there's more, so thank you. <laughs> um, I, I was born in Winnipeg and um, uh, youngest of three. My eldest sister is here, Gail. Uh, and uh, uh, I would say a middle-class family upbringing. My, my dad is a retired high school teacher. Uh, my mother raised the family and stayed at home, had a small part-time business in fashion um, while, while we were in high school. And um, I was the kid who was just dying to get out of Winnipeg and, uh, and move on to the next chapter. <laughs> and how would you describe yourself as a child? What kind of kid were you? Picked on? <laughs> so, Winnipeg, okay? So, besides minus 40, uh, high school at my generation was walking down the halls and every guy had an Iron Maiden or ACDC, ACDC shirt on. And I had like a Lacoste um, popped collar shirt on, <laughs> trying not to get beaten up uh, uh, on recess, okay? So, so, that, so, I didn't like high school at all, hated it actually. And, you know, when you look back on those times, is there a moment where you kind of thought about fashion as being something that's more than just clothes that we use to cover our body, when it kind of dawned on you that it could be something more than that? I don't think that consciously, um, but I do know, I do remember Saturday morning and Sunday morning, I would time my life to watch fashion television. Yeah. You know, now you're... Decades later, you. <laughs> you know, being chummy with Jeannie is is fun and neat, but it's like I keep reminding her, I'm like, like you were like my little salvation back in those days, like 25 years ago. Were you an entrepreneur as a young person? I was. <laughs> so um, I remember people ask, what was your first job? And th there's the first real job or the first made-up job. So the first made-up job was... Uh, uh, I, it's Winnipeg, so again, paint the picture, lots of snow. I remember uh, wanting to have um, designer clothing like my rich friends, which I did not have and couldn't afford. So my mother basically just said, well, get out there and make some money. And I think I was 10, so I went to the neighbors and said, I'll shovel your, your driveway. And I came up with this concept of a, a weekly fee, whether it snowed or not, I, they would pay me. <laughs> and so I had a little circle of, of some neighbors and I used to shovel the snow. So that was, that was the, the, I think, the earliest one that I can remember. So the entrepreneurial bug bit you early in order to finance your, your fashion. Yeah, it was always to finance what I wanted to do, for sure. That was the, that was the, the driver. And you, you were just saying, you know, time to get out of Winnipeg, get out of Winnipeg. No <laughs> offense to Manitoba and Winnipeg. Um, when did you, did you leave to go to post-secondary? Did you go to design school? Yeah, so I, I had to. I was told you have to do one year of university in Winnipeg, so I did. Hated it. 
Um, I literally was kicked out of college, uh, university once for talking to the person beside me, and it was during, I don't know if it was anthropology or something, learning about the shape of our forehead and how it changed over the years, and I, I just remember the professor stopping and scolding me, and I just blurted back before I got kicked out, how is this going to help me buy my own BMW? Like, like <laughs> learning about the slate, the sh the, my forehead, how it's like the, the, the angle of it has changed over the, you know, millennials. Did they give a good response to you? No, I got kicked out. I mean, I mean <laughs> but, but yeah, so I mean, I had no interest. I was in the wrong courses, in the wrong school. I was in the wrong place. When did you end up in the right place? When I moved out to Ontario, I, I went to Sheridan College in Oakville, which at the time had um, a very unique course, which I'll tell you about, but uh, it's also where the generation ahead of me, um, Wayne Clark had graduated from there. Lita Bidet, for those of you who remember Lita Bidet, mm -hmm. depends, I'm aging myself. Um, Brian Bailey. So those were the big Canadian names and they had all graduated from there. So I was doing all my own research. There was no internet at the time, that's how old I am. <laughs> so I was doing all my research and found out that that's where they graduated from and that became one of uh, the top schools on my list to go to. And how long a program was it when you were there? That was two years. And so you've done your, your, your fashion school. Was there an internship as part of that? Well, it wasn't strictly fashion school. No, it was like too, management right? school, right? So that was also interesting. So the typical fashion school that you would know today, um, whether it be fashion, business, retail, marketing, management type courses, or design are kind of your two options usually, I think currently. Uh, and Ryerson offered those. And the reason I ended up going to Sheridan is at the time that the dean of the business school um, partnered with the dean of the fashion school where the design was, and they took half of those courses and half of those courses and blended them. So all morning you were doing accounting and you were doing finance and you were doing stuff that I hated and I found boring, but I was there because my parents made me, you know, and, and then the afternoon was like this fun stuff. Um, what a gift, though, in retrospect, well, I'm sure. That's why I feel like I'm still here. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so what did you do when you were done? Uh, at the time, there was a, a store that had opened in Canada, and again, might be aging myself. Uh, it was called Breton's, and it was trying to be uh, a Nordstrom for Canada way back when, like 25 years ago-ish. And that was known to have the best management training program. Um, and I wanted to become a buyer. Like, I was like, I am going to be a freaking buyer if it kills me. Like, I, that's why I was in school. I mean... Think back like 30, 25, 28-ish years ago, for those of you who are that old. Some of you weren't even born then. But we'll anyway. just say a while yeah. from now on. The top TV show was <laughs> Dallas, and, and, and Pamela Ewing was a buyer, and she was awesome, and she went to all these fashion shows, and she was in Paris and Milan and New York, and I'm like, I want to do that. Like, that's I mean, exactly how it is like, when you're a buyer, exactly right? That's exactly how it is not. So, so that's what I wanted to do, and the best place to do that at the time was this, this chain, this national department store chain called Breton. So I went into the management training program, and that was to become a buyer, and they said, great, you got in, and it was really tough to get in. I was super excited and honored, and you had to, as part of it, work um, while you were training and getting through the program, you had to work in the shoe department because it was the most difficult place to work because there's the most fittings, there's the most sizes, there's the most heel heights, there's the most, it's the most difficult thing to design, which I learned later, it's the most difficult thing to sell. Um, and next in line is men's suits. 
So they, they want to put you in the toughest spot to sort of earn your stripes and learn. Yeah, makes and that's, sense. that's how I got into shoes. I was forced in. I went kicking and screaming. I was trying to negotiate. Wait, well, what if I don't do it and I do this instead? They're like, no, you have to do it. I'm like, okay. So I was supposed to go do it for a year and then never left footwear. And did you, did you enjoy it off the get-go? Like, were you, once you, you know, resigningly accepted your, your lot to be in the shoe department for a while, was your initial reaction a quick 180? Or what was, how did you come to love the shoe? So I just threw myself into anything, um, and I probably, we laughed about this before, I probably had what some people call today the millennial mindset, because I wanted to be promoted five minutes after I started. Um, <laughs> but I, I basically wanted to be a VP after one year, and I just was like, what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing? So I, I remember my day off driving up to the head office, which happened to be in the GTA, and and calling a meeting with the senior buyer and just saying, so what do I need to do to get promoted? Like, I need a list. Tell me the list so I know what to do. And then I just went out and did that. And they put me in a department which was the weakest performing shoe department in, in their national chain. And so after first quarter, we were number three. And after six months, we were number one. So then I got promoted. So As you would. Well, well <laughs> that's what they told me I had to do. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And when did you sort of have the aha moment that there was something lacking in the shoe category that you saw a need for? So I was, you know, the fashion guy going down this road, going to be a buyer, moved to New York, take over Saks Avenue, had it all planned out, maybe a stop at Bergdorf's on the way. And like, it was all fabulous. And this is how I was going. Totally. And then I got thrown into shoes. And I'm like, okay, a little speed bump and we'll just work our way around it. And then I pretty much got introduced or headhunted away to another side of the business um, via a friend of my sister's, actually, um, who uh, knew about a, p a position and I went for an interview in an orthopedic shoe store. And so I'm like showing up with my poof and my hair and my gel and my tie and yeah. whatever. Nothing says glamorous like orthopedic yeah. shoe and company. I was just Ryan. like, <laughs> I was like, just go talk, just go listen, right? That's yeah. what people older than you tell you to do when you're younger. So I went and listened, and I went through a couple of interviews, and they ended up offering me a job to run to manage this orthopedic shoe store. And there was like podiatrists, and they, were, they made orthotics for people, and it was like the most ugly, hideous shoes you'd ever seen. And I was just like. I don't know if I can do this. So I went through the interview process. At the end of the day, they made me an offer, and I went to the third interview, and, and I was going to say, thank you so much for your time, but I'm not interested. I can't do it. And they made me an offer. And I said, I still said, I can't do this. And they said, no, 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 the owner is moving to Florida and semi-retiring. He wants you. So they said, what are you earning now? And I told them, and they said, we'll double it. I'm like, okay. So that was it. <laughs> so I went and did that, and I did it for two years. And didn't love it by any means, but I learned a ton. And, I, and the big takeaway for me in shoes, if you think about footwear, was the biomechanics. So biomechanics is a study of body movement and very short version. I learned how the foot affects the ankle, affects the knee, affects the hip, affects the back, affects the neck, affects migraines, like all of that and how all of that could be treated, cured, dealt with, managed through footwear. So when I went out on my own, I took that with me Obviously, it was like in the back of my head. So it's still the little peep, 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 little radar in the back of my head when I'm thinking design now or before I started designing when I was buying other brands to carry in our stores. And did you go from the orthopedic shoe store to branching out on your own? Was yeah, that so the transition? Th yeah. So then I, well, you know, I think I was 23 and I knew it all. So 
Naturally. I was so, so I was living in a basement apartment. I asked uh, a couple close family friends for uh, a loan, which I thought was giant. It was $5,000. I'd never seen so much money in my life. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I, I had student visas the credit cards and because you yeah. could get those not without... to travel to get credit yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I um, got a couple extra visa credit cards maxed them out with cash advances um, there's a representative of Royal Bank here who probably doesn't <laughs> want to hear this but anyway the Royal Bank at the time had a program um, and I became chummy with my banker and they had a program and said if you walk in with fifteen thousand dollars and you've got minimum of two years experience in your field and minimum of two years of schooling, like check, 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 all the stuff, I checked all the boxes, we'll match it. So I used the Visa cash advances and I went into the bank and I got another $15,000. And then I had, now I had $30,000 and then I went to some friends and family and said, I got $30,000, I'm rich, I could retire, but, but um, so I thought, could I get a little more money? And I ended up raising 50 and then I went and found a location and paid for first and last month's rent and it was like, roll up my sleeves and, either make it work or close. What was the smartest way you feel you spelt you spent that money in hindsight? Like where did it where were you like ah that like cuz so many entrepreneurs start with like uh, either their visas or something and they think you know am I spending it in all the right places? Do you do you have any sort of insights as to where you thought where you in retrospect you say aha that was smart. I put it in the right place there. Uh. <laughs> I don't think I was that smart back then. I mean, to, to, to take credit for that. I did some things, thankfully, luckily. I mean, out of necessity. Is, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So I didn't have money to renovate, so I found a store that had closed that I could convert the shelving to be shoe shelves. Um, so I did some creative things like, mm. like that or hunted those things out. I mean, so Deanie Petty, for those who remember Deanie Petty, loves the story. Mm. I, I, I couldn't afford enough shoes to buy. So what I would do is I would have one shoe on a shelf, and it's a big shelf, and I had color pictures in frames of that shoe in other colors. So when you would come in, I would say, yeah, this is, isn't this beautiful? And then you're like, yeah, I'd love to get it, but can I get it in the red? Well, you know, I've got the black here. Let me fit you in the black, and I'll special order the red. So I had more pictures than I had actual shoes on the shelves. And, and I was carrying other brands at the time, and um, people used to come in and think it was an art gallery. <laughs> it's very forward thinking, really, Ron. Like when you think about, you know, the way retail has evolved, and we're going to talk a lot yes. about that, um, the whole idea of the minimalist store and special ordering yeah. things so you're not carrying a it lot of retail. It wasn't that. It was... <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I'd like to say it was that, but it wasn't. <laughs> and through, through being a... Because you were a multi-brand retailer at that time. Yeah, this yeah. is so pre... I started... Exactly. I started in a... My, my, my thought process was... When I was in this orthopedic world, um, although I didn't like it, I learned a lot, everyone who came in and said, wow, these shoes are so comfortable, but they look like Kleenex boxes on my feet. Isn't there something that looks better? And the answer was no. And then when I was at, in the fashion side, everyone was like, they lead, all the leading ladies would lean in and say, which ones are the most comfortable? <laughs> like, so everybody wanted to be comfortable, but they wanted fashion too. So my thought process was blend the two um, as a retailer, that, that was the, the vision, and, and open up a concept. And this is back when, I mean, this goes 15, 18 years ago, when Nike owned Cole Haan and put Nike Air in the shoes. Like, I was the first store that launched them for Canada. Like, and this was this unheard of thing. So it was stuff like that that I would bring to the market. So I was a retailer that sought out unique product that was fashion and comfort combined, um, and that's what I did. Tell us about 
when you would go in to talk to some of the buyers and ask them to make modifications? Oh, to the brands? Mm -hmm. that, okay, so, so it started with carrying these different brands, but then I would be like in New York in Stuart Weitzman's showroom, and <laughs> when he wasn't standing right beside me, I would turn to his assistant or someone and said, you know, that, that pump over there, that's got a great heel. It's a cool shape, but it's got a wide base. I know it'll be really stable for her if she's a lawyer and on her feet running around. And I saw there was a little loafer over there and it had a really neat padding inside. And, and there's a little ballerina flat there that's got a great flexible sole. Could I use that sole and that heel and that padding and put it in this shoe? And they were like, I don't know. So I had to sign these little waivers that, because I was redesigning his collection and they thought it would be a huge failure. And I had to sign to confirm payment if this didn't work, that I would take the onus of it. So those shoes ended up becoming some of my top sellers. And then when I opened uh, a location like the one here in the Manny Life Center, I used to have clients who would come in and say, God, I got this Stuart Weitzman shoe here, and I was just at Holtz across the street. Why is yours so much more comfortable? And I'd be like, <laughs> well. <laughs> Let me tell you. And, and then what, what happened was is eventually some of these shoes that I had sort of redone ended up in his collection and in other brands' collections that I did this with. And so my advisors, which I've always had a group of different advisors around me, um, said, why are you doing it for them? Now it's his number two shoe. Why don't you do it for yourself? And that led to, okay, maybe I should go try and make my own collection. And did that, did, had it ever occurred to you prior to that about designing your own collection? Had it ever kind of been in the back of your mind or? No, no. I, it was actually take over Saxon Avenue in New York and run the show. And, 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 and that was, so the design again was necessity. I felt there was a hole in the market. I thought, again, young, um, big headed and thinking I could do this better than what's going on out there. And how did you go around, so now you've decided, you know, you've had your, your advisors have said, you know, why don't you do this? And I want to talk about mentorship in a minute because yeah. it's something we've talked a bit about. Yeah. What, how did you go from being the multi-brand retailer to designing? Where did, you, where did you start? What were the changes you made to make your shoes special? So, um, well, first, I, I didn't have formal training, like in pattern making. I gone to school for fashion, but I didn't go to school for fashion design. So I was like, am I going to have to go back to school? How is this going to work? And in doing some research, um, I found out that Ralph Lauren had never learned how to design anything. He understood a feeling of what he wanted a collection and a lifestyle to be. Same thing with Calvin Klein. Same thing, you know, um, with Tommy Hilfiger. So I was like, okay, those are some pretty neat yeah. mentors to look at. They did all right. Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but you still have to learn. So um, I did my research somehow without the internet uh, <laughs> and found a program based out of New York that um, funded leading retailers from across the U.S. to go to Italy. And the Italian Trade Commission and Consulate paid for it. And they would fly them over pay for all the expenses, put them up, travel them around to leading factories and make all these introductions. It was like crazy. So I, I applied. I got introduced at a trade show to the woman who was in charge and you know, she became my best friend and, and we had lunch and all those things that you need to do. Um, and she's lovely. And she let me as a Canadian join the group. So we went to... Because it hadn't been open to Canadians. Correct, correct. This was an American program with the Italian Trade Commission and Consulate. So next thing you know, we're traveling first class. I'd never been in a first class anything. And I was like, whoa. I'm like, there's a, there's a trolley cart in, in, the, in the aisle. <laughs> Is that allowed? <laughs> um, so we went over first class. We, 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 they, they took us uh, for about three weeks to different factories. So I was in the Jimmy Choo factory. I was in the Manolo Blahnik factory. I was in the Louis Vuitton factory. I was in the Chanel factory. 
and I'm getting business cards left, right, and center. And all of a sudden, I had all these contacts. And w I was the young guy. Everybody on this trip was easily 60 plus, and I was mid-20s. So I was everyone's nephew adopted, so I had a, had a lot of new mentors now. But also the factories, the people who've been doing this three, four, six generations were so excited that there was someone young that was interested in what they were doing. So I made those contacts, and I started to go to Italy then after that and visit these factories and learn shoemaking from them. That's it. Like, the resourcefulness to get yourself all of these places is I got is out of Winnipeg so I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> and is your, is your retail location still running? Like, you've got your multi-brand retailers still going? Or did you take a pause while you were developing your oh, online? Oh, no, 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 no. That was, yeah. No, it was running the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and what were, when you, did, when you were creating your own shoe, I know we've talked about how you made seven big changes to right. it. And, and certainly I don't want you to give away any proprietary information to fellow shoe designers who might be listening, but how did you, was it just the biomechanics and like learning from, from the mentors that made you say, okay, this is, this is a place that needs improvement. This is how I can do better here. So my approach was at the time, again, going back, thinking back to that generation, this is when Calderon Shoes was the giant shoe chain. There was a lot of these chains that don't exist anymore, but they were doing this, there was no way I could compete, so I would do that. Whatever they did, I did the opposite, or did mm -hmm. different on purpose. Um, and when I went to go make a shoe, I had now had that biomechanics experience and heard from all these people who want something more comfortable, but it was, it was, it was a, a tailored corporate pump that everyone was looking for. They were like, they would come in and go, I need a heel like, that I could walk in. Like, I need a heel that I don't have to take off. I need a heel. I'm a real estate agent. I can't, I have to run up and down the streets. I got to, whatever. I have life. I have kids. I've got stuff going on. So I came up with this concept of trying to make a heel really comfortable, um, which eventually led to unveiling and registering and trademarking and inventing the world's first all-day heel. But to do that, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the biomechanics experience because then that's where I brought all that in and added it. What do women tell you about how they want to feel in shoes besides just being comfortable? Like, you know, we talk a lot in fashion about how it's, in a, it's, a, it's a tool of expression, that it helps with confidence. I feel empowered when I put on a jacket. They, th they have certain symbols. How do people talk to you about shoes in that way? Most people that I talk to, my, my core customer um, is confident. And confidence is a really interesting word in fashion. So my customer will come in and say, I never wear a giant Fendi on my glasses. And to have Gucci across my chest means like I'm trying to prove something. So it's this understated confidence, a Max Mara woman, a Brunello Cuccinelli woman, and the Hermes woman. So not logoed and not loud and not flashy, but sophisticated and confident. So, so, so that's what she was looking for from styling. Mm -hmm. um, and she also, when it came to her footwear, she also refused to be in pain. She's like, this is ridiculous. Why should I be in pain? And I mean, the, there's the famous quote that I live by, and a lot of these ladies knew. It was, it's from Coco Chanel. And uh, I, I first was made aware of this by uh, Mark Derbyshire, who was the president of Holt Renfrew for a number of years. Many of you probably know him, great guy. Um, and Coco Chanel has a very famous quote that is, true luxury must also be comfortable. And, and so she equates it to the cashmere turtleneck. It feels luxurious. And somewhere, we had this whole conversation together, he and I, mm. 
from the ankle down that went sideways right around when Sex and the City blew up as a TV show, which also helped the shoe industry and put Manola Blahnik and a lot of other people on the map. But it did go sideways somewhere, that it was okay to be in pain and luxury from the ankle down didn't mean comfort, but from the ankle up it did. And so people in the business were like, what? Well, who made that rule? Well, why is that? Fortunately, you came <laughs> along to change things. Doing my best. <laughs> so you've embarked on your, on your own designs. What was the response like for you, like when you saw you, when you opened your first shipment or your first box of Ron White shoes? It, it, it's pretty neat, like, because it's, um, you go through these phases with design. So there's first an idea in your head that turns into a sketch, which I had to get someone to re-sketch them because I didn't even know how to sketch properly. Then it becomes a pattern. Then it becomes a prototype. Then you hate the way it looks, and then you change it, and then it becomes a sample, and then it becomes production. And the production can be different than sample, and the sample can be different than the prototype. So it's, it's a long process. It takes six, eight months. Um, it's pretty neat, though, like, to have a product. I think any product, not just shoes, to all of a sudden your name's on it. You're like, what? Mm -hmm. It's like the first time the store had the name on it. You're like, what? Like, it, it's a little bit, it's a moment, right? It's surreal. And, you know, this, this, what we're talking about, the design and whatnot, is often, you know, the creative, the sparkle, the exciting part. But you're very involved in the business side of things as right. well. And right. the, so you started with retail, where there yep. was no, there was no online, there was... Right. Where, how did your channels begin? Did you have a catalog? Were you selling to other retailers? Did you do a wholesale retail model? So when I started my collection, mm -hmm. so, so I started uh, the first store about 26 years ago. We're sort of celebrating that 25th anniversary-ish yeah. this year. Um, um, the collection started about 12 years ago out of necessity because I, and, and after that sort of example I told you of like the Stuart Weitzman and all that mm -hmm. stuff, um, and it started with just heels. It was all-day heels. It was a grouping of heels. It was even part of the logo. It was Ron White all-day heels. And it was just heels. And it was for this, this lawyer, this corporate woman, this businesswoman. She was in banking. She was in real estate. That's what it was. But she came back to me and said, hmm, I'm also a soccer mom on the weekend. I need a boot for the winter. Could you make me a flat? I love these. They're my favorite heels. What about a wedge? Mm -hmm. And so when you do it, they're little groupings or families. Um, of styles, and then so uh, next season I added boots, and then I added riding boots, and then I added you know wedges or espadrilles, et cetera, et cetera, and you just add, and now it's sort of jeans to tuxedos and everything in between. So when I did all this, the vision was to do it just for my own stores, right? So I thought there was a hole in the market, it was for my own stores, that's it. What happened was is we get a lot of tourism here, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call from Chicago and from San Francisco and from Houston, and their store saying, my top customer was in town for TIFF. My top customer, my favorite customer was in, from Boca Raton, it was in. And she bought two pairs of shoes with her girlfriend at your store, mm -hmm. and she swears by them. Do you show your collection? We'll be at New York Fashion Week. We'd like to come see you. And I'm like, oh, shit, I guess I better start showing. Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> so then I started to show, like, in this very small little booth and, and started to go to, um, to New York and to unveil the collection and start to show it. And, and of the big major national chains, the one that tends to sniff out this stuff um, in shoes first is Nordstrom. Mm -hmm. So Nordstrom was my first big national partner that appeared um, and, and started with me in the U.S., and were you were you on the floor in those early days? Like I can hear your connection with your with your client, and you really need to be present in order to hear yeah, those things. Yeah. 
100 percent I would open and sell shoes all day. Yeah. <laughs> I would close and and do the books. I'd go for a bite to eat and come back and mop the floor, sleep in the basement, and get up the next day and do it again. Like I mean, like that's 25 year overnight success, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. The Oprah quote, right? <laughs> now, I know you've had, you know, lots of of very cool milestones and moments in your in your career, but 2011 is a year that I really want to hone in on because a lot of stars aligned in 2011. Things, things come in waves, right? You know, like, like sometimes it's bad stuff and sometimes it's good stuff. And I remember 2011, <laughs> a lot like the stars aligned. So, like, how fluky is this? Matt Damon's on a red carpet doing interviews for three hours and his wife is standing with him in heels that are hurting her and she starts complaining while he's being interviewed by Entertainment Tonight and the woman standing beside her hears her, doesn't know her, and says, well, next time you're in Toronto for TIFF, you should check out Ron White. They're unbelievable. And so she reached out, and next thing you know, like all of a sudden I was hang, hang, hanging out with Lucy Damon while Matt was doing his premiere, and, and then that led to Rob Lowe, and that led to, you know, Kim Cattrall and Katie Kirk and all these different people, and Celine Dion, whatever. Like, it, there's a ripple effect. And, but I then had someone here during TIFF, it's interesting timing that we're here on the, on the edge <laughs> of TIFF, um, that had heard something about me and came by and reached out and said, we run the VIP um, gifting suite for the people who are at the Emmys or at the Golden Globes or at the Oscars. And it's, it's basically if you present an award or if you're nominated or if you're performing, that's the roster. So it's pretty A-list. Yeah. And this was when those were very exclusive and there weren't that many of them. I mean, now there are tons of gifting right. lounges, but then this well, was a very special time. There's official ones too. There's, there's a whole whack that people just set yep. them up in their basement. And yeah. then there's the one that you're... We were actually at the Emmys backstage stage live during the rehearsal and live during the show. And we actually had... I mean, I remember the guys from Entourage. They had just gone on stage mm. and done something. This is mm. when their show was blowing up because yeah. it's back in 2011. Mm. And Rob Lowe was there. He was on... I don't even know what he was on at the time. You guys probably remember one of his television shows. <laughs> but, but, but when these guys came backstage, they were like, oh, let me check out your stuff. I got 45 minutes before I have to be back on stage and I'd show them some things and they're slipping off their Gucci's and their Prada's and they're like, these are awesome. I'm going to wear them tomorrow for the live red carpet. And I was like, really? Like, you're going to change like last minute. <laughs> and, and that's how it all started. And, I mean, all the celebrity is really exciting and right. sparkly and this is pre-Instagram and social media and yeah, stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. So it's happening. I mean, it's so oversaid, but it is happening very organically. Yeah. Um, there's some awards for you that came that year. Well, so again, the stars were aligning. Um, so there's there's a publication um, in footwear called Footwear News, and it's part of it's like a sister or organization or sister magazine to um, Women's Wear Daily, which of course is our gospel in, in our industry, all owned by Condé Nast. Um, and they picked they have ten categories, and they pick a, a global winner in each category every year, and they host a big gala for those winners. Um, at the MoMA Museum in, in New York. And um, they had announced that Adidas was athletic brand of the year. And they had announced that Uggs was the boot brand of the year. And they had announced um, the Manolo Blahnik was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I won, for the first time ever, still to this day, as a, as a Canadian company, the Canadian Independent Retailer of the Year. It's so, amazing. So I, I, I show up in New York and all these people that I'm like, 
you know. Yeah. Patricia are, are Field. Yeah, yeah, Pat <laughs> Patricia Field was won yeah. something as well for her work with Sex and the City as the stylist. So it was that was pretty crazy. That all happened the same the same year. It was pretty nuts. And how did that translate for you into what did it did it have a lift in sales? Was it just kind of part of the emotional fuel to your fire? How did it work as a Definite tool? emotional fuel, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I find those things, I find celebrities wearing things, um, generally don't have a lift in sales, so not to burst everyone's bubble. Um, and Instagram, for me, doesn't do it um, for my customer. Um, it makes them sniff around, but it doesn't turn into instant sales. What that did for me is it opened doors. So you could call Bergdorf Goodman or Neiman Marcus or a leading buyer that you wanted to have an appointment with and never get a phone call returned for five years. Um, after that, I all of a sudden, well, a lot of them were in the room, so I met them that day too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that helped too. But um, I was emerging. I was someone that at least deserved a phone call or an email returned. Now, I want to go back to the business side of things yeah. because you've, you've seen the advent of e-commerce. You've seen bricks and mortar go through remarkable transitions, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But you have Jeannie Becker to thank for a very, thank for a very important right. channel yes. of Ron White Shoes. Yes. So, so Jean, what she's talking about is Jeannie, um, uh, after fashion television wrapped up after 27 glorious years, mm -hmm. she partnered up with the Shopping Channel to host a show at the launch of each season for about six weeks, which mm -hmm. is launching, I think, this Thursday. Um, and... Um, she asked me three different times if I'd like to come on her show, and I politely said thank you, but no thank you, it's not my audience, I'm too expensive, da 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 da, da. I envisioned nine-year-old women at home knitting, watching, and I'm like, no. And so she asked me a couple times, and, and then I got a phone call on a conference call from her and someone else in, in the organization, and they said, we just came out of an executive meeting, and every woman in the room, and there was many of us, were wearing your shoes. Like, we're the customer, She's watching. You should try this. So I went, fine, I'll try it. <laughs> Again <laughs> so, with resignation, no, you go. I, I didn't know. I, I, you know, you want to hedge your bets. You don't want to totally. fail, right? Anyway, um, we went on air in, a, in November, and um, we did a half-hour special together. And uh, the sales were like what one of my stores would do in a month, in half an hour. And I was like, what the F is going on yeah, here? You have my Who attention, Shopping this? Channel. Yeah. And fast forward, you know, you meet different people in the industry. Um, there's a billionaire woman who is very sophisticated and takes her private jet and has a $2 million annual shopping budget and spends it in New York. And she says to me in passing at a cocktail party, oh, I just bought five pairs of your shoes yesterday on the Shopping Channel. I'm like, what? <laughs> and the president of the Royal Bank um, said the same thing to me. Oh, I just bought three pair. And I was like, and then the, 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 the woman who was running um, Home Depot Canada and the woman who runs FedEx mm -hmm. Canada. And I'm like, what? And so what I found out is they actually had it on instead of the radio in the background. They weren't sitting there watching the shopping channel and knitting. Mm -hmm. It was on in the background. And when something sparked their interest, they looked over and maybe they bought a Dyson vacuum all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. But in that case, they also bought a Ron White shoe. So for us, it very quickly became the equivalent of the volume, to understand this, of what the Hudson's Bay does in 40 locations. That's pretty crazy time. It's pretty crazy time. And what do you attribute that to? Like, is it just because it's a visual aid? Is it because you have a half hour to talk? 
Um, well, now it's five hours a day when I go. <laughs> so I, I, I can talk. No. You can go on and on. But, um, but it's storytelling, it, right? It's storytelling. And, and, and that's the magic. And I think, I think anyone who builds anything, so you design something, you build something, if you've remodeled your kitchen or your bathroom or your bedroom or you've put a new shelves in your closet, you want to show it off and you're going to explain it to anyone else like better than anyone else. So I explain every single design element from the sole up, how it was designed. The, the hidden technology inside, which you don't see, which is important, mm -hmm. but also this beautiful hand-cut, hand-woven, blah, 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 whatever the heck I'm showing, um, you extol the virtues of it. Mm -hmm. And, and um, to have that, that avenue to do that, just it, it, it justified the price, so they understood the craftsmanship out of Italy. Um, and you, you, you story told, like you, you showed why it was so great. And, and I think, realize garments have runway shows. You don't really see runway shows for footwear. It doesn't showcase well at Fashion Week. So generally you show it in a showroom. But, so, but, but again, as a shoe brand or a shoe designer, you don't get the same press and the same excitement that all my buddies and friends did in, in clothing and fashion. So I had to have another place to show it and tell the story. We, you, you've been watching the retail industry ebb and flow. What are some of the like really major changes that you've witnessed? Like we're looking at such a, you know, we've talked about, you know, stores even in this neighborhood that are, that are closing. What do you attribute to the companies that are continuing to survive and the companies that unfortunately are, are having to shutter? Um, if you're in the industry and reading... Um, articles of, uh, from Women's Wear Daily or from um, Retail Insider. I know Craig is here, and he's he, he's like the, the gospel to go to. Um, they keep calling it the retail apocalypse, right? And and I, I actually believe that's that's true. So, in over 25 years of doing this business, you you meet a lot of people, you meet a lot of friends at conventions, at at, at fashion weeks, and I have friends from Montreal and from Calgary and from Ottawa and from Edmonton and from Vancouver. And in the last 18 months to two years, all of them have closed, just wiped out. Boom! It's remarkable. Like just crazy. Yeah. Um, and these are, some of them are 60-year-old businesses. I mean, the same way David's is, is, is got their sign up, they're closing. I mean, that's a 65-year-old business. That's a tragedy to me. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it breaks my heart. But the model of those stores is what's called a multi-brand retailer. So you're a store like Calderon, which is no longer here, that carries 20, 30 different brands. What is still existing and what is still thriving are mono-brand retailers. So that is a Ferragamo store or a Nike store which is one brand. So you're designing, manufacturing, importing, distributing, and retailing. You're doing the whole food chain. So I didn't plan it this way, but when I started my own line and it was the all-day heel, which was 10% of my business, and it grew to those other categories, we stopped carrying Stuart Weitzman, we stopped carrying Cole Haan, we stopped carrying Donald Pliner, et cetera, uh, John Barbados, whatever we were carrying, because my collection took over in those market segments. So now my stores are about 80% of our own collection, and we'll still carry some other brands of friends of mine that, that kind of are different or don't compete and, and, and fringe around it and complement it. But if you look at the retailers that are left, um, most of them are mono-branded stores. And, and, and in Canada, they may not even... You may not even notice it. Like, I'll point it out to you. Like, so, so bravo for what Browns is doing. They're a national retailer. They're still here. They're not Town Shoes, which was multi-brand, gone. They're not Capizio, gone. They're not David's, going. Like, they're not any of those guys. Browns is 80% their own label. You may not know it because it's Browns and B2 and 
Brown's Couture, but then there's Giuseppe something something or other and Stefano, what's his name? Like, I don't even know the brands, but they're, they're house brands. Yeah, they're, it's like they're private labeling for themselves. Right, yeah. so, so becoming um, the brand of, uh, you have to be that mono retailer leaning. And, and what, what people believe in our industry is that multi-brand will exist only in department stores in another couple years. So the, the small boutiques will be all mono brand because that's the only way they can survive. And department stores generally pay one one hundredth of the rent that everyone else pays in a mall and that's how they can, that's how they're able to do it. Now you've got a couple of exciting things on the horizon <laughs> that will ensure that Ron White Shoes will be around for another 25 trying, plus years. What are some of the things that are, that are coming up for you? Um, well, the, the brick and mortar side, we now look at it as our own retail, which is the retail that we operate. We have a wholesale company, which is when you sell your brand to other stores, and we're now in about 100 different locations across North America. Um, and we actually are segregating television sales into a third arm because it is the fastest growing and it is the, just exploding. So we launched last fall um, on a U.S. network, and um, that has become now our biggest client, our biggest customer, our biggest business. It's bigger than Nordstrom, which is unheard of in my industry. Um, and one that's six times the size of that one is called QVC UK in England, which is more like a Bloomingdale's, but it's a QVC, so it's a different merchandise mix than the one you might know of from North America. And we're going to launch there in the spring. So that's huge and exciting. Um, on the brick and mortar side, um, we, we're, we're, we're honored, truly honored, um, to be part of an opening in New York that I, I believe is probably the biggest thing in about 20 years in retail in North America. Um, so about four years ago, the Nordstrom family said, enough is enough, we can't find a location in New York. And they bought a city block. Um, and they've taken out the t first seven floors on a 20-floor uh, historic building, okay. but also a 95 luxury condo. They bought out all the floors. So they have an entire city block and they're opening up this flagship, which, when has there been a flagship of that magnitude no. in and New York? It, like West 57th, like prime Crazy. Like, Manhattan So real it's estate. all anyone's talking about. They've been building it for three years. It's actually opening this fall. And it was like lockdown, like no chance. Like I'm not getting in there. Who am I? Like it's Valentino, it's, it's Chanel, it's all the big boys. Um, um, I went and pitched it. I asked the buying team, I went to the executives, I finagled whatever way I could, you know, as you do all the mm -hmm. way along. And, um, and I made a presentation a, about five weeks ago in Seattle at their, at their head office about what's coming with our brand with them in our expansion in the US. We're expanding with them, which is lovely. Um, but we're not in New York. And I, I gently, in a nice Canadian way, pointed out some things that would be perfect for New York when they were ready. Because I knew I wasn't in it and I wasn't allowed and it was all locked down and there was no more budget and all those thousands of reasons. And the most senior people were in the room who I'd never met before. And I just said this, this boot sold out like crazy in Chicago and in Utah and in Toronto and it would be great for New York. I know we're not in New York, but one day when we can get there, this would be perfect. And two days later, so that was, I just rolled it in gently, right? You don't want to be too pushy. And um, I got an email two days later from the buyer, just a quick little text, saying, just so you know, your New York comments did not fall on deaf ears. There is an executive management meeting tomorrow to discuss adding you last minute, because it was all locked down. And then two days later, I got a note back saying, congratulations, you've been added. So we're going to be part of that, which is super exciting. And it's not exciting from a 
from uh, getting the order for that location that they're buying whatever, 100 pairs of shoes or a couple hundred pairs of shoes. It's the fact that there's never been an opening this big that I can remember. Um, yeah. So the people from Dubai are going to be there. The people from Hong Kong, the people from China, the people from everywhere around the world are going to check out this new flagship that everyone's been talking about for four years. And they're going to walk by, and probably most of them are going to, who the heck's this wrong white guy? <laughs> and, but they will take a picture, and they'll make yeah. a note. And so my team is now getting ready for like what is going to unfold. Because all of a sudden, that being in that one store will put us on the map. It, it, it will be, I think, the biggest PR moment for us ever. I mean, Kate Middleton wore my boots, and it was nuts, and they called me and traced me and went to the house and went to the store and went to the office. I think this will be bigger. And it will be so exciting. That's in October it opens. So October 24th. The, the world's eyes will be upon it. Um, before we open it up for questions, because we have time to take a couple, um, you do some amazing charity work that you are very quiet about. I have to say. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Ron White Shoe Drive and, and how that started? Um, yes. So uh, that's my parents' influence for sure. Uh, you, you know, we grew up with hand-me-downs and one car and, and, and nothing fancy, but my parents always volunteered. Always, as long as I can remember. So year one in the business... I remember walking up Young Street. My first store was at Young and Eglinton, right across from where Chibo is right now. Um, and um, I just remember, you know, you're in the shoe business, so people come in, they buy buy shoes, right? So what do they do? They go, these ones are horrible. In my case, they would say, oh, they're not, they're uncomfortable. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, D can you do something with them? I don't know, give them to someone who needs them, or or throw them out, or dispose of them. But I'm done with them. And half of them looked brand new, in my opinion. So being this Winnipeg boy, I was like, well, I can't throw these out. So they just went in a green garbage bag in the basement, and they just sat there. <laughs> I'll just store them. I, I had to figure it out, but I didn't have time because I was, you know, the chief, the cook, the bottle washer. Yeah. So, so I remember walking up Young Street. It had just started to snow. It was in late October, and um, there was a homeless man who was always in the neighborhood. He was leaning against the side of a building, and I looked over, and when you're in the shoe business, you look at everyone's shoes first, uh, and I looked at his foot, and his, his big toe had punctured through his sneaker, you know, the fabric area. Mm -hmm. and, and I literally looked over and snowflakes were just landing on his foot. And it was like a little ting noise almost went off in my head. And I was like, oh my God, I've got shoes in my basement. Something's got to fit them. And that led to, hey, why don't we do a shoe drive? Hey, why don't we ask our clients and our neighbors and our community to clean out their closet, uh, you know, and sort of make it a New Year's resolution mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and bring in the shoes that they were done with that still had life left to them. And, uh, you know, 23 years later, 50,000 pairs later, we collect them, we sort them, we give them to women's shelters, homeless shelters, um, you know, anyone in need. And that'll be happening in January? Yeah, so we, January? Run it, we, we kick it off in January, right? So, so we use the um, follow in the footsteps of your favorite celebrity. I asked, you know, Celine Dion. I asked Matt Damon. He's, that's when you start going to these people and saying, hey, you know, would you give me a pair? So they would sign a pair, and we would put them on display in our windows um, and, and say, follow in the footsteps of your favorite celebrity and, and don't donate your shoes. So while we're all Marie Kondoing our closets this fall, we should save our shoes exactly. for January. Exactly. You mentioned Sex in the City as something that gave shoes a real moment. Yes. Do you think there's something we'll see like that again for the shoe industry? <sighs> Everything is cyclical. Mm. Um, so I, I remember when um, Birkenstock and um, Doc Martin were all the rage probably 18 years ago. And no one could believe it at the time. And then it had its moment. And, well, and I think it was a five-year moment, but it had a moment. And then no one touched them and you didn't see them. And boom, here they are. Birkenstock, 
Doc Martin are like, so, so there are cycles for sure, and I've been around long enough to see them, so I think that's interesting. Um, Sex and the City was, it's, it's written up a lot in my industry, and we talk about it a lot, because it was a fabulous, awesome show, um, like loved it, but there was so much about shoe love and shoe passion. Um, and naming it, like, and shoe brands. Like, I don't think anyone yeah. knew who Jimmy Choo was. Uh, and Manola Blahnik was built on that show. Yeah. Plain, plain and simple. Like, he was, like, unheard of before that. I'm going to open it up for questions. But, Ron, it's been such a pleasure. Thank oh. you so, Thank so, you. so much for being here. I mean, yes, applause. <laughs> we... We do have time for a couple of questions. I'll do my best, Ellen DeGeneres, and move around. Does anyone have a question for, for Ron? Oh, over here. Hi. I just wanted to ask, when you started your designing your own uh, products, what was your biggest fear uh, before introducing them, and how did you overcome that? Um, what was the biggest fear? Um, I don't think there was fears because when you're so passionate about something and you believe in it, I think the challenge is to get other people to see what you see. So you love something because of blank and so to getting, getting them to see why it was so special and unique. So that wasn't the fear. The fears came into producing it, making sure they fit okay, making sure you shipped on time, making sure they were labeled properly, and all the other hoo-ha that goes on in the background. I mean, so we, 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 we joked about buyers and wanting to be a buyer after seeing Pamela Ewing be a buyer. Well, well then when I found out that it was 10% going to fashion shows and 90% accounting, I was like, okay, I don't want to do this. You know? <laughs> but but shoe, design is, uh, shoe designers will tell you it's 10% design and 90% running a business. So... Those are the things that I wish they told me in school, quite frankly. Cause like, As it is for, for most fashion designers, the, the design is 10% and it's running the business. That's, that's the rest of yeah, the, so, the so, recipe. So, so there wasn't fear. I mean, I guess you could say there's fear like when you show a collection, are people going to like it enough and, and buy it? Um, it's a bit of an adrenaline rush too. So we, do it, we used to do it every six months. Now you do it quarterly. So there's showing the collection. You kind of have to, you put yourself out there. You're kind of like up on a stage in some perspective and just going how do you like my stuff? Like, do I pass or fail? Like, thumbs up or thumbs down? Like, and you're basically throwing yourself at the mercy of all these buyers from all these stores to say, do you pass or you f do you fail? And they, I mean, it's their job, but they just go, you know what, I'm going to pass this season. I'm like, what, you're going to pass? How are you are not going to buy? Those are fabulous. How are you, you know, and, and, but you're putting yourself out there um, and asking to be critiqued, right? When you think about it, like, we don't often like to be critiqued yeah. and nobody, often we don't like to get feedback. You better be ready for feedback, let me tell you. <laughs> Hi, Ron, thank you for this. Um, I'm in the, the uh, world of size, inclusivity, and diversity. And I'm working with companies with regard to adaptive clothing. Have you ever thought of how you could work with, company, work, work with people to be able to have people who are in wheelchairs or various things like that that would be able to wear your type of shoe instead of wearing something that is not as flattering as they would like to be wearing? It's, it's, um, it's something that's crossed my mind because of the experience I had in the orthopedic world. Um, it would be shifting my focus. Um, and what I've learned is that you have to be niche marketed and be laser sharp focused. And you can't be everything to everyone. Um, so I'm after a customer who um, 
doesn't like flashy labels, wants quality, wants to look chic and sophisticated, wants to be updated, is willing to spend four or five hundred dollars, um, um, but is not willing to spend eight hundred dollars every time they go after a shoe, um, has certain lifestyle needs. And um, the comfort element that I market, the word comfort isn't any, is not in any of my marketing. So it's actually a bad word in my world. In fashion, comfort is an ugly word. So if you're a comfort brand, you're over here, and you're actually made in a different part of Italy. And if you're a fashion brand, you're actually made over here. And, and the two have collided with cashmere and, and other products. The way that we've found success is all day heel is how I started and part of our brand DNA. Um, and that is the way we say comfort without saying the word comfort. Um, if I got into um, the market that you're talking about, it really is another business to me. It's like saying, are you um, in the motorcycle business? Or, well, we're doing so well, why don't you make some cars? Well, cars are completely, they're both modes of transportation, but it really is a different business. I would need different factories, I would do, need different um, setups, different lasts, different ways to make the shoes. We have time for one more. Are there any, anyone else? All right, one more question. Hi, Ron, just a question for you. So I'm a self-confessed uh, shoeaholic. Um, I love shoes. So Good I for have, you. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You'll have to thank come you, model. Donna. Thank you, Donna. <laughs> um, so a couple of questions. I yes. have, I have um, my first question is being Canadian and in the footwear industry, what does it mean to you to be um, a Canadian designer in our industry? And what kind of advice would you give to people who are looking to become a footwear designer, um, what advice would you give them, you know, good or bad? And then my second question is, what shoe would you say is overrated that you know? <laughs> I know, it's a little tough one for you, but what shoe, if you were to choose, do you feel would be overrated um, based on your experience? <laughs> I love it. Uh, wait, so the first one was advice for, for someone getting into the business? Yeah, people, um, aspiring shoe designers. So um, I would definitely recommend um, spending time in your career in another shoe organization. So um, a lot of things that took me seasons or years to learn, I probably could have learned in a shorter period of time, being the intern, being the junior, whatever, in another company that did that. So I had to learn by trial and error rather than just learning because I have a belief that every, everything's been done. So I don't need to reinvent a wheel. Why not go learn from the guy who built the wheel in the first place? So, um, so that would be one thing. Uh, shoe designing in Canada is pretty difficult because there's virtually none <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, as far as the manufacturing. It's, there's some boot companies, but that's about it. And that's what makes it a challenge. So, my buddies who make clothing, they go into their spare room, you know, when they were in startup, and they would work on a, a blouse design and sew it up, and I got to fly to Italy to have it made. So there's, there's, there's barriers that make it more difficult. Um, so make sure you love it, because it's not as easy because of that whole uh, manufacturing side of it. Um, An overrated shoe? I, I don't love <laughs> giant trends. Like, I don't love super ultra trendy. I like classic elegance. I like sophistication. I like things that are timeless. Like, like again, like when you think of Chanel jackets, when you think of Hermes, uh, I, I mean, those are sophisticated and timeless. And, um, and then you can invest in quality and feel good about spending for the quality. 
you know, every season we see something and, and we think to ourselves like, oh, that's really awesome. I got to get that. But in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, I'm never wearing that after like the season's over. Like it's that trendy. So I would say it's, it's the ultra trendy that like, okay, neon, the neon patent pumps that are out right now, like seriously, no one's wearing them next season. <laughs> so like that, that would be an example of, of something that's so trendy. Um, and if you have an unlimited budget, great, grab them. Um, or if you're gonna get them from somewhere that's uh, an opening price point, it's fun to grab them. But uh, I'd rather see people, and I like people to invest into quality, and then you want the longevity for it. Ron, thank you so, so much. People can follow you along at Ron White Shoes to yes. keep an eye on what you're doing. A huge thank you to Katha, our producing partner with the podcast. Thank you to Toronto Fashion Week for hosting us. And until next time, I'm Donna Bishop, and this is Fashion Talks. <laughs>